It's 1944, and five children are killed in the bombing of a Woolworth store in southeast London. But what if they had lived? Follow them through the years as they encounter all the reality of life in the 20th century. From Francis Spufford, Costa Prize-winning author of Golden Hill, comes Light Perpetual, a novel of the everyday and the miraculous, of second chances and redemptions. Light Perpetual. Out now in hardback and ebook from Waterstones. Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. This is Today with Kino Cummings on Cape Talk. And a very good morning to you, Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, joining you. Hey, Chris. It's been a while. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I'm pleased yeah. to, to hear you, see you, whatever. Back. Yeah. Good to talk. Yeah, yeah, we are in the same space, virtually. <laughs> it's great to have you on. What, what have you been up to over, over the last week? Well, you know, I've travelled the world, uh, gone out and about, gone to lots of matches, football matches, parties, and mass that. gatherings, that kind ah. of thing. And then I woke up and <laughs> here we are having exactly the same ah. conversation we've been having for a year. What are you going to do with your lockdown weekend? Um well, I've been busy, of course, because we're still in the throes of very high numbers of cases here in the UK, although it is falling really quite dramatically now. I mean, it's falling for two reasons. Number one is that the country has been in a lockdown. We've got physical distancing going on, minimising contact between people, which breaks chains of transmission. So that reigns in outbreaks. But at the same time, we are now beginning, I think, to see the impact that the vaccine is having. Because if you look at the rate of which, at which the numbers of cases are coming down and you look at the rate at which the numbers of deaths in the people who've been vaccinated are coming down, the death rate is much steeper in terms of its decline than the case rate. And that argues that that disparity can be accounted for by the fact we are protecting now those most vulnerable people. And that's really good news because that, that says as the world you know, vaccinates itself, we're going to be in a position where we can begin to open things up because, yes, you can have cases, but no, they won't turn into mortalities. And that's, at the end of the day, where we started down this track of, of trying to stop this thing, while at the same time also thinking about what are we going to do about the future because the one thing that remains an ever-present risk are these variants. So people are keeping a, a, you know, a close eye on what's going on in the UK, what's going on in mm. Brazil, what's going on with South Africa's variant. Uh, or the variants that originated in in all of the aforementioned, and how they're now now impacting yeah. on other countries around the world. So, you know, still interesting times. It certainly is. A question for you. Um, this comes from Ronald in Tivatus Cliff. He says, concerning the moon, which we know is slowly leaving the Earth's orbit, and one day will disappear over the horizon, so to speak. Um, can you speak to that, please? Hello, Ronald. We know that the moon is moving away from the Earth because one of the space missions to the moon put a mirror on the surface and every day a laser beam is pinged from the Earth to that mirror and back again. And because we know the, the rate at which light travels, it's 300 million metres per second, then we can work out based on timing how long the light takes to go to the moon and back how far away the moon is. And if you make those measurements, you find that roughly every year the moon is about two centimetres or so further from the Earth than it was the year before. Why is it moving farther away? The reason for this is that the Earth is spinning on its axis, taking 24 hours to complete one revolution. The moon takes a month to go around the Earth. So the Earth is turning inside the orbit of the moon. The moon is pulling a heap of water, a bulge of water on the Earth's surface towards itself. But because the Earth is turning, that bulge pulled up by the gravity 
of the Moon is slightly ahead on the Earth's surface than the position of the Moon. So in that way, the Earth is exerting a torque or a pull on the Moon a bit harder than just down to gravity. And this is having the effect of giving some of the Earth's rotational energy to the Moon, and this is pushing the Moon to a higher orbit. But at the rate at which it's moving away, two centimetres per year, it's going to be a really, really very long time, i.e. probably longer than the lifetime of the solar system, before the Moon disappears. But it was in the past a lot closer than it is today. And we have evidence for that written into the fossil record because you can see evidence on the Earth's surface in some very ancient rocks, for example, of very high tides. And we, we would anticipate that when the Moon were a lot closer to the Earth's surface, it would have pulled up the most gigantic movements of water on the Earth's surface. And, and so you, you can actually see the, the evidence of that uh, still here today. So there, therefore, um, we, we have a sort of happy medium at the moment with tides that are not too high, but we have not, don't have no tides. And the Moon is moving away, so tides are getting a little tiny bit uh, smaller each year. And the uh, Earth is also slowing down very slightly. Every, every century a day becomes about two milliseconds longer because the Earth is uh, slowing wow. down and giving its energy to the Moon. And that's why the Moon is moving away from us. What else will happen if the Moon totally disappears? Well, some people attribute the stability of the Earth's climate to the presence of the Moon because it exerts mm. a stabilising influence on, on the way that our planet behaves, on the so-called precession of the planet. This is its wobble on its axis. And mm. the fact that we have this stabilising influence has kept the, the Earth in a relatively stable state over the course of its lifetime. The Moon appeared on, uh, first appeared in the sky about 4.57 billion years ago. And that was because in the young solar system, two planets are thought to have been on a roughly collision course. One caught up with the other, the two smashed together, they merged and then ejected into the atmosphere a very significant amount of the crust material of Earth. This coalesced to form the Moon and this explains why the Moon is so big relative to the size of our planet. It's still smaller than we are but it's still a very big body relative to the size of the Earth. Most moons are just captured chunks of something by a big gravitationally active object, which as those objects go swinging by, they're pulled into the gravity well of that particular planet. But our moon is massive because it's made from part of us. And it's been there since, really, the Earth settled down, cooled down, and life began to e emerge. And because of the stability conferred by the presence of the moon, it's created an ideal environment, really, for life to be able to gain a toehold, survive, flourish, and, and arrive at the present time. Okay, you are listening to Dr. Chris Smith, Dr. 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 He's got two doctors. He's got three doctorates, by the way. Um, <laughs> the Naked Scientist. And he'll be asking all your questions about everyday life. And as I always say with that lovely, mesmerizing scientific twist. JP in the City Bowl. JP, now I know you have a cardiac-related question. Um, I, I just always caution people uh, who have questions that Chris doesn't do diagnosis. So I'm just putting that out there. But uh, what, is, what is your question, sir? <laughs> morning, Keith. Good morning, Keith. Great show. Morning, Thank Dr. you. Dr. Morning. Um, <laughs> morning. Um, my question is, is, how does the body regulate potassium um, you know, levels? My understanding, and, and I am a layperson, but my understanding is that low potassium in the body can cause uh, cardiac malfunction. Um, and obviously, elevated uh, potassium chloride um, can cause the heart to stop functioning uh, from from uh, what I understand. So I just want to understand how does the body prevent, uh, you know, provide optimum cardiac function and how does it regulate uh, the, the potassium within the body? Ah. 
The way this is achieved is because the cells in, in your body, and there are 37 trillion cells in the average adult, those cells have a membrane. The membrane is a fatty material and it therefore behaves as an insulator and this means that you can have an electrical charge across it and what cells have in that membrane are pumps that pull potassium into cells and throw sodium out of cells and they throw three sodium particles out and pull two potassium in and the consequence of that is that you end up with a negative charge inside the cell and a positive charge outside the cell and you can use that charge difference to do work but the problem is if you don't have enough potassium in your body cells are going to struggle to push the potassium into the cells in the first place and if if you therefore can't do that you reduce the charge that's stored in the membrane you you have a, a lower voltage across the membrane and many cells in the body including cardiac cells other muscle cells nerve cells rely on that charge imbalance across the membrane in order to carry out their function for example creating a heartbeat so the body very tightly regulates the levels of, of things like sodium and things like potassium because that's how it controls the physiology of its cells the organ that does that chiefly is your kidney and the kidney is the most amazing thing which is why we struggle to replicate it when it goes wrong but the way the kidney works is that it has a system of blood vessels that take the blood under pressure and filter it and then selectively reabsorb back into the blood the stuff that the body wants and throws away the stuff the body doesn't want. And in that way you regulate the concentration of chemicals in the bloodstream to keep the ones you want at the right level and the stuff that you don't want, like any excess sodium, you throw away. And that's why your wee is salty. Chris uh, Smith, of course, the Naked Scientist with you. Uh, thank you very much for that, JP. That was JP's question. Cooper Hudson on Cape Talk. Weekdays at 1 p.m. Once in December, you did manage to squeeze in one performance. My mm. understanding is the audience response was incredibly positive. The dancers actually came off the stage after Serenade, and there was just this sort of moment of silence backstage with the tears. And I just mm. thought, gosh, I remember why I do this the CEO of Cape Town City Ballet, Debbie Turner. It's Lunch with Pippa Hudson. Every weekday. One till three. Only on Cape Talk. Join the conversation. A great event reflects an organization's brand. That's the principle that the team at Brand Exposed lives by and how they've come to create extraordinary events. With expertise in Bedouin stretch tents, audio visuals, live streaming, Brand activation and event management, Brand Exposed will take your brand to the next level. Email info at brandexposed.co.za for all your event infrastructure, event management and decor needs. Brand Exposed, turning the ordinary into extraordinary. You're with Cape Talk. This is Today with Kino Kamis. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, with you answering all those questions that you have about everyday life. Now, a question for the Naked Scientist, um, and I think it's got to do with the loss of taste. Joe, let's take a listen to it. Hi, Kino and Chris. Um, I have a, a question around your loss of sense and of taste and smell. So when I normally get the bit of the sniffles, then I um, I put uh, Vixen steam and then I inhale it, and it would burn my nose and my throat and my eyes and my chest. But I recently got COVID and I lost my sense of taste and smell. And when I tried inhaling the Vicks, 
I didn't feel any of that until it kind of hit my lungs. So it made me wonder what's actually happening in our bodies when we lose our sense of taste and smell. Thank you. That's an interesting question. Chris? The coronavirus we discovered early in the process of the pandemic last year targets selectively the cells in your nose and throat, at least to start with, which have a receptor on them called ACE2. And this particular structure, this molecule, is very heavily expressed on the same cells that also do the job of smelling things and also doing what we call taste, but which is actually smell. So when you're infected with the virus, it hits those cells that have this marker, this chemical molecule on the surface, which signal to the brain a certain smell is present. The way they do that is on the surfaces of those cells are receptors. They're effectively chemical docking stations that are looking for different molecules that you breathe in. And when, when those molecules dock with their receptors, it fires off electrical activity in the cells that have seen that particular chemical. And that electrical activity is then pinged into the brain, saying a particular smell or group of smells is present. And that's what we call a smell. And when you put things in your mouth, the smells from the food in your mouth go up the back of your throat and do the same thing, and we call that taste, but actually we are smelling the food that's in our mouths. Now, if you damage the cells that do that because they've got a virus in them, and the coronavirus, when it goes into cells, turns them into virus factories, hijacks their normal function, and then ultimately destroys them, both because the virus destroys them, but also because the immune system will then start moving in and destroy them as well. If you lose those cells, then you lose the ability to detect molecules in the air that you want to smell. Thankfully, because this happens a lot, many, many types of viruses will, will damage that so-called ep olfactory epithelium that does the job of smelling. It's developed an excellent capacity to regenerate itself. So when you do get a virus infection, you transiently will lose your sense of smell and taste, sometimes completely, sometimes partially, and usually because the virus has damaged that tissue, but also produced a lot of mucus that will cover the tissue and, and stop the smells accessing the tissue as well. But because the tissue has a very good regenerative capacity, it will produce new smell-detecting cells over the next couple of weeks. And what we find is that people who are impacted by coronavirus will generally half the time to 60% of the time lose their sense of smell and taste. In some cases, in some case series, it's been 100% of people have lost their sense of smell and taste. But thankfully, more than two-thirds of the time, it comes back within a couple of weeks. But what about the other third? Will half of those get their smell and taste back a bit over subsequent weeks mm -hmm. to months? But a fraction, maybe, maybe one in five to one in six, might never get back normal senses of smell and taste. And some poor people develop a condition called parosmia, where the system rewires itself not quite right. So things that you used to enjoy the smell of, you now don't like the smell of at all. And going back to the VIX question, there are a few things to consider here. There are, there are smells in the VIX that you need a working smell system to detect. There are also other molecules like menthol. And menthol contains or is, is a particular substance that can activate a chemical which is present, a, a, a structure present on nerve cells, which is a specific receptor. It's called a, tri a TRIP-M8 receptor. And when that's activated, it tells a nerve cell that something cold is present. And when you activate it with a chemical like menthol, it fires off barrages of nerve activity, telling the body that patch of tissue is colder 
than it than it really is. So it fools that nervous system, part of the nervous system, into thinking that there's there's a colder signal there than there otherwise would be. Which is why you you when you breathe in, having eaten a, me, a mint or menthol, you you feel the air is colder that's coming into your mouth and lungs because it's activating the nerve cells more than it otherwise would at that temperature. Mm. And that's what gives you that soothing feeling for the VIX. That will still work because the nerve cells that are signaling that are not the same cells that are signaling smell and taste. So although you won't be able to smell the VIX, you will nevertheless be able to get the impact of the menthol that's in it when it impacts on the nervous system and and so you're 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 quite neatly with that doing the natural experiment of disentangling what is a smell effect and what is a neurological effect the naked scientist right you're on today on 567 medium wave cape talk chris smith of course that's his name and let's hear more of your questions and by the way thanks to everybody who's called in and have also posted us the whatsapp voice notes you can do that to on 0725671567 but if you want to chat to chris directly 0214460567 good morning kino thanks for the wonderful show i'd just like to know from um, the naked scientist what are the advantages and disadvantages of the um, salt lamps, Himalayan salt lamps that are on the market now? Thanks. Salt lamps, Himalayan salt lamps. I have not heard of I'm Himalayan none the wiser, I'm afraid. Uh, I think I need a picture or a reference or, or saving. So if someone can tell me, what and Kino by the sound of it, what these things are, I mm. think that, that would be a start to answering the question, to actually understand it in the first place. I don't know what those things are. Yeah, a Himalayan salt. Never heard of that before. Uh, but we are taking more of your questions this morning. Um, and hi, Kino. I've been wondering for years about the differing length of people's necks. Do supermodels with impossibly long swan-like necks have more uh, vertebrae in their necks than the rest of us, for example? No, they don't. And the same question could be applied to a giraffe, couldn't it? Because if you look at a giraffe, with a very, very long neck, it's easy to think, well, it must have enormous numbers of bones to support that. And in fact, if you count them up, they have the same number of so-called cervical vertebrae that you and I do. They're just taller. And so the anatomical differences in a human will be down to the relative sizes and proportions of the bones. But the average human adult has 206 bones. And some of those bones in a tall person will be a bit longer than in a short person. But there's still 206 bones there. Same with the length of your neck. Please ask Dr. Chris Smith, why do some people float easily in water and others rather seem to sink? I would imagine that's got to do with how relaxed you are, but okay, I'll leave that, up, that, that one up to you. <laughs> Floating is all about density. And yeah. the things that float are less dense than the things they are floating on. And the way you calculate density, density is equal to the mass of something divided by its volume. So if you've got something which is a a small mass in a big volume, like ice, for example, then it's going to float because it's going to push out of the way a a mass of water, let's assume we're floating on water, which weighs more than it does. And so as a result, it'll float. So in the context of a human body, most of our body is water. Two-thirds of of what we call a human is, is water. But the other stuff that's there includes muscle, bone and flab, as well as a lot of gas as well. And so it depends what the composition of the rest of the body is that determines how floaty you are. Now, if you're extremely, you know, heavy skeletoned, as in you're a big strapping person with a big, great skeleton and a huge muscle mass, very little, very little flab, 
then actually the density of that tissue is going to be quite high. So you're going to float less well than someone who's a bit flabby, who um, isn't isn't big boned, shall we say, and their density is going to be more pro- more closely approximating water. And if they take a nice deep breath in, they'll have a whole lot of gas inside them, it pushes their density down even more. And as a result, they're going to float better. I think the density of a human is about 1.5 grams per centimetre cubed, and I think water is, is uh-huh. one. So therefore, naturally, we almost want to float. And if you take a deep breath in and relax, as you say, you, you will tend to float pretty well. Um, but, but some people, obviously, it's going to come down to body proportion that they're going to float better than others. Okay, so let's go to some more of the questions that you've been putting to us. Morning, Doctor. Can you please explain the optical illusion regarding lightning? It appears to strike down to the Earth, but in fact, it travels up to the sky. Says Salwan, is that accurate? What is lightning? Lightning is a charge imbalance, or or quite more, more accurately, the correction of a charge imbalance between the bottom of a cloud and the Earth's surface. And when in a cloud, the water particles, because there are ice and water particles inside the cloud, they're called hydrometeors, when they rub against each other and jostle around on the air currents inside the cloud, they rub against each other in the same way that you rub a balloon on your head, you can transfer static charge, and you end up with some of the particles have a negative charge, some have a positive charge, and it just so happens that the ones that are negatively charged end up at the bottom of the cloud, and the positively charged ones end up at the top. And because you've got that charge separation inside the cloud, you then have the potential, if you excuse the pun, to create a potential difference between the bottom of the cloud and the Earth's surface. And as a result, you push away from the Earth's surface the negative charges because like charges repel and negative charges, electrons, can move. So if you bring a cloud close to the Earth's surface that's negatively charged at the bottom, you will find that the patch of the Earth's surface approaching or approximating or facing that bit of negatively charged cloud bottom will become more positively charged. And now you've got a potential difference, voltage in other words, and eventually the voltage will become sufficiently high that it will have the ability to ionise, in other words, strip the electrons away from the gas particles which are in the intervening atmosphere between the cloud bottom and the Earth's surface. And what you'll end up with if you if you strip electrons away is something called a plasma, and that is a conductive soup of particles. And so the lightning won't just be one strand of lightning. In fact, it will put out lots of tendrils which flow through that air which has been ionised. And as it flows through the air, it will slowly make even more air become ionised. And so eventually, in the same way as like lots of little rivulets, slowly one of them becomes the dominant one, it will then send most of the charge whizzing down the path of least resistance, having ripped the electrons away from a whole load of different patches of the atmosphere. So you'll get lots of little strands going out to start with, almost like tendrils feeling the air and finding their way down towards the ground. But then one of them becomes the dominant one because it's a positive feedback loop. As soon as you start to strip more electrons away from one patch of air and you make more plasma and and you make a more conductive pathway, more charge begins to flow in that direction and then whiz-bang, down it goes. And you, and you then equalise the charge imbalance between the bottom of the cloud and the surface of the Earth until all the charges or as much charge as it takes to equalise that potential difference has dissipated and by then you've unleashed about 2 billion joules of energy 
and uh, and cooked the air to about uh, 30,000 degrees, which is why it then expands in the shockwave and you get that huge rumble of thunder. Not only is he magnificent when it comes to his knowledge, but impeccable with his timing. Chris, it's almost 10 o'clock. Thank you very much it's for your pleasure. time. We always appreciate it. And have a good weekend. I'm not going to ask you what you're going to be up to. <laughs> See you soon, Kino. <laughs> See you. Cheers, eh? Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.